Yeah, it's good to be back. Um, last week I was preaching at a different church, uh, one of our supporting churches, First Baptist Church, Atwood, Illinois. But, uh, you know, here's home and I'm glad to be back. Um, please turn with me in your Bibles to Mark chapter 4. We'll be looking at verses 35 through 41. <clears throat> That's uh, page 839, 840 in the Bibles there in the, in the chairs. Do you guys remember how Mark starts his gospel account? Anybody? The beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. Yeah, Mark begins by telling us his purpose. To tell, or maybe we should more appropriately say, to show us that Jesus is indeed the Christ, that He is the Son of God. Mark's reason for writing this gospel, this brief historical account, is so that we might know, so that we might believe, so that we might see with our eyes and be given, given understanding through the work of the Spirit to realize that Jesus is God's promised one, that Jesus is God's anointed King, that Jesus is the Messiah, that Jesus is God's own Son, not just begotten of God, but is God in the flesh. Mark wants us to understand that. And so he paints a picture for us in his gospel. And he doesn't simply just want to tell us, as if to say, hey, Brett, guess what? Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God. He wants to go beyond that. He wants to paint a picture. He wants to tell stories so that you can come to the conclusion on your own, so that you can see without a doubt that this is the case. I told you a while back that uh, that Mark is sort of the action hero comic gospel, Right? It, it, it does, it's less about words. Like he doesn't focus so much on the teachings of Jesus as much as he does the action or activity of Jesus. He wants us to see Jesus at work. He wants us to see Jesus' authority come out over and over and over again in the various events that, that he portrays. He wants us to understand who Jesus is and why he came and what it means to follow him. And so he's given us event after event and situation after situation and account after account to force us to answer this question. Who is Jesus? Who is he really? So far, Mark has demonstrated time and time again the authority of Jesus. An authority established first at his baptism when God thunders down from heaven declaring, this is my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased. But event after event, you see it happening again and again and again. You see Jesus' authority over people and that He calls them and immediately they get up, they leave everything behind and they follow Jesus. You see His authority to teach. That He doesn't teach like the religious leaders of the day. No, His teaching has authority. It has power. And it leaves the crowd, it leaves the audience just awestruck and amazed by His authority. He has authority over evil spirits. We've seen Him cast demons out with just a word of His power. We see His authority over sickness, over disease, over disability. We see His authority over sin having in himself the authority to forgive sin, an authority that belongs only to God. We see him having authority over the law. He is the Lord of the Sabbath. He has established himself as the authority over the law because he is fulfilling and will fulfill perfectly every letter of the law. And today, we'll see Jesus has authority over nature. He will speak. And this terrible storm 
would be stilled. In each of these accounts, Mark doesn't just tell us who Jesus is. He shows us who Jesus is. He paints the picture so that we can come to terms with this question. Who is Jesus? Who is this man? He challenges us with that. Do you believe this? And if he is who he proves himself to be, then we are obligated to follow him. So again, let's read Mark chapter 4, verses 35 through 41, and that's page 839, 840 in the Bibles there in the chairs. It says, On that day when evening had come, Jesus said to them, Let's go across to the other side. And leaving the crowd, they took, they took him with them in the boat, just as he was, and other boats were with him. And a great windstorm arose, and the waves were breaking into the boat, so that the boat was already filling. But he was in the stern, asleep on the cushion. And they woke him, and they said to him, Teacher, do you not care that we're perishing? And he awoke, and he rebuked the wind, and he said to the sea, Peace, be still. And the wind ceased, and there was a great calm. He said to them, Why are you so afraid? Have you still no faith? And they were filled with great fear and said to one another, Who then is this that even the wind and the sea obey him? In this passage, we see a great storm, a great calm, and a great fear. First, let's look at the great storm. In this passage, the context of this passage, we see Jesus doing what he's always doing, right? That he's there uh, alongside the Sea of Galilee, and he's preaching. He's doing what he does. The crowd is so large at this point that he now actually has to get in a boat so that they won't crush him. There's so many people around listening to what he has to say. He's there. He's been preaching more than likely all day, um, and uh, he's getting ready to set out. We saw recently that Jesus' ministry objective has changed a little bit, and that now when he speaks to the crowd, by and large, he teaches in parables rather than just preaching openly from the Old Testament in the synagogues like he did originally. Now he's out outside, he's out in the wilderness, he's along the sea, and he's preaching in these parables. And he's giving explanation of everything to his disciples and to those who were intimately following him. On this day, after more than likely what was a long day of teaching uh, these parables, of performing miracles, it was evening, and Jesus decided that they should just go. That they should get in these boats, the boat that he was already in, just as he was, and they should go across to the other side of the Sea of, uh, of, of Galilee. I'm not sure why they call it the Sea of Galilee, because seas are salt water, and this is a freshwater lake. Um, maybe it's because this lake acted like a sea it was it was known for these torrential storms the, that would just suddenly descend and just kind of they were a mess um, i won't bore you with all the particulars about the the sea of galilee but it just happened to be like 600 feet below sea level with with mountains on either side and so the wind would just kind of rush down and these storms would just all of a sudden hit so bad that it was almost like the the water was bubbling the storm was that bad. It was the violent storms that happened uh, all the time. And you would think, well, if storms were that violent, then why would people fish there? It was because there were a lot of fish. There's a ton of fish. It was one of the most, uh, I don't know, fertile, natural um, fisheries there, there is. And so it, it naturally attracted people. Um, 
And Jesus was out there more than likely on, on a fishing boat. I mean, at least four, if not seven of his disciples were fishermen. So he's out there more than likely on one of their fishing boats doing his thing. And these things were small. Uh, they actually found, archaeologists found one of, one of these fishing boats in the Sea of Galilee, and it's about, you know, they brought it up, and it's about 27 feet long and about 8 feet wide, 4 feet tall, had a sail, had some places where some guys could row, held about 15 to 20 people, so not a big boat, right? And then with these winds, they would, they would create waves that were over 10 feet tall. It would easily sink a boat that's 4 feet tall, right? I, so um, it's pretty, pretty bad stuff. But Jesus, nevertheless, you know, he's there in the boat. He just said, hey, let's go. They get in. They set out across the sea. And the sun is setting. It's evening. It's, it's time for them um, to go to bed. But here they are. It's night. And they're, and they're there. And, and Mark makes this other distinction. He said that there are other boats with them. It wasn't just Jesus and the 12 who were in this one boat. There were other boats together. And remember, we saw that in addition to the 12, there were these other people who were intimately following Jesus that more than likely were with them in these other boats. And they formed you know, what, is, uh, what is called a flotilla, which as far as I can tell is a combination of two words, floating tortilla. And uh, <laughs> uh, <laughs> I just made that up. But, uh, but anyway, yeah. It's a funny word, but everybody talks about it. You know, I'm reading commentaries. I'm listening to guys preach on this, and everybody's like, flotilla, flotilla. And I'm like, floating tortilla. Yeah. So, um, yeah. And they set out in this, this group of boats across the sea at night. Um, verse 37 tells us that, that they were crossing the sea. Suddenly, this great windstorm arose, and the waves were breaking into the boat so that the boat was already filling. This is a a great and fierce gale that suddenly descended upon them. These waves were were raging around them, and they were pounding the boat and swamping these small fishing vessels. And and this wind was howling. It was tearing at the sails. And and these unbalanced sailors were being pushed to the edge. They were fearing for their lives. People were hunkered down in the bows of these these ships just trying to hang on. And they they were afraid. Even these experienced fishermen, these sailors, knew that they were in danger. They knew that they were about to perish, and they feared for their lives. So here they are. They're in the dead of night. This fierce windstorm is breaking at their boats. Waves are crashing on them. It's filling up with water. Everyone's screaming and panicking and fearing for their lives and calling out to God for help. And what is Jesus doing? He's in the back taking a nap. He's sleeping on a cushion. He's cuddled up with his pillow back there. You know, just just sleeping. I mean, he was out. <clears throat> and uh, I, I could just, I get this image, and maybe I'm just weird or whatever, but I'm getting this image of Jesus, like, back there on a the cushion, you know, and he's, he's holding his pillow, and, and this, this water is, like, splashing on him, and the, and the wind is blowing his hair around, and he's probably, you know, he's floating a little bit because the water is filling up the boat, you know, I mean, this is, this is the kind of sick stuff that I get, and it's not my fault, really, because uh, if, if you've ever seen the Jesus film, right, 
Have you seen that? And when they shot this scene, like, it's so funny because the actor's like trying to pretend to be asleep. And you can see him just like, he's, he's hanging on, trying as this boat is rocking back and forth. And he's trying not to drown as water is going up his nose and stuff. And so this is the kind of stuff that I get a, get a picture of when I see this. And it, it's just amusing. And so, sorry, I, I don't mean to make light of the word of God, but uh, this is, it cracks me up. I mean, just this image of Jesus being asleep on this boat. Um, but, uh, but yeah, and it's totally possible to sleep that hard. It is, really. I mean, I, I know for a fact because my wife does it all the time. And, and I have at least on one occasion done that, and, and Phyllis and the Billingsleys can testify to that fact later. You can ask them about it. Um, but here's Jesus, and he's, he's completely crashed as this uh, just giant windstorm is, is hitting their boat, um, threatening to sink everything. But amusing as this story is of Jesus sleeping in the boat, Mark wants us to understand something. He wants us to understand that Jesus is fully human. Jesus is just like you and me, right? He sleeps, he gets weary, he sleeps hard. After a long, exhausting day of ministry, Jesus, the man, curls up and he crashes in a boat. He's that tired. Now, in our day, we'll readily accept the fact that Jesus was fully man. No qualms about that at all. We have problems with Jesus being fully God, right? That's the problem that we deal with. But ironically, in the early church, it was the opposite problem. No one questioned the fact that Jesus was fully God, but there were a number of people that questioned that Jesus was fully man. There were some heretics, some false teachers, who were later called the Docetists, who believed that Jesus just appeared as a man, that he seemed to be a man. Dakeo means um, to seem, to appear. And so they were given this, this name, and the church actually had to remove them, because they, though they fully embraced the fact that Jesus was God, they were not willing to say that Jesus could possibly be a man. But Mark wants to show us different. Jesus was just like you and me. Jesus ate, Jesus drank, Jesus slept, Jesus was born of a mother. He, he had mother, brothers, and sisters. He had all those things. Jesus felt, he experienced emotions. Jesus suffered, Jesus bled, Jesus died. Jesus was 100% fully and really man. He's not some divine apparition. He doesn't just appear to be human. He is human. He's just like you and me. <clears throat> now, now, the followers of Jesus, they hadn't quite figured out who he is. I mean, they fully recognized that he did some amazing things, right? That he did some astonishing things, and they were willing to, to follow him because he was some kind of authority. But I don't think that they came to him because they were confident that Jesus could do anything about this storm. They were just in desperation. They were pleading for their lives. They're like, I, I know that Jesus can do some things. Maybe he can talk to God and God can do something about this. I don't know. Right? So they're, they're pleading to him. And they woke him up and they cried out, Teacher, do you not care that we're perishing? Do you not care that we are about to die? We've seen what you can do. We've seen the things that you say, how they've, 
They're so amazing and powerful and authoritative. We've seen that you've had compassion on the crowd, healing many that aren't really followers of you. And, and we're here with you in the boat. We're here. We're trying to follow you. Don't you care about what happens to us? Don't you care that we are perishing? I mean, you can get the sense of desperation that Mark speaks of when he's giving this account. <clears throat> they were afraid that Jesus, though they weren't fully sure what power he had, was just going to let them die. Like, Jesus, you told us to get in this boat. This was your idea. Remember, back there on the shore, you were the one standing in the boat. You were the one that said, come on. And we came. And we're out here in the middle of the night. This storm is everywhere around us. It's about to kill us. And you're taking a nap. Are you going to leave us in this? Really? Are you going to allow this to happen to us? Really? Is this what it comes to? All we wanted to do was follow you. Are you going to let this happen? I wonder how many times you all have experienced personal storms like this. I know that I have. There are times in your life where things happen and they are outside of your control. And you have no idea whether or not you're going to be able to weather those storms. We've all had them. If you haven't had them yet, you will. These, it's just overwhelming. And you feel like you're going to die. You don't know what's going to happen. Maybe, maybe it's a result of a natural catastrophe like this. A storm hits, a tornado, a hurricane. I don't know, something that happens. Maybe it's because of death or loss. That you've lost something that was valuable for you. Or something happened in your life that seemed to make your life infinitely harder. And you don't know what you're going to do about it. It might come even as a result of you trying to follow Christ. It can happen. Maybe your trials or personal storms are a result of, say, I don't know, maybe going and, and trying to plant a church in Champaign-Urbana. And uh, all this stuff keeps happening to your family. And, and it's hard, you know. It's harder than you expect. Things are not going the way that you planned. And you're working, you're working, you're working, and you're just trying. And it's, it's weighing on you so much that you actually suffer physical pain as a result of trying to follow God's call. It's happened to every hero of the Christian faith. Read about Adoniram Judson. Read about William Carey. Read about uh, read the the biography of John Calvin or Martin Luther. All these guys dealt with personal storms, and in those storms, you are wondering if you are going to make it. You are wondering if you are going to perish, and you ask, "Where is God in this? Where are you?" What are you doing? We've all felt that. Are you going to let us die? If that's the way you've ever felt, then you're in good company. Jesus' disciples clearly felt that way. Right? Read the Psalms. King David clearly felt that way. Many of, of God's prophets felt that way. Jeremiah was called the weeping prophet because that's what he did a lot. Because he wondered about his life often. Even Jesus sweat drops of blood. And as he was there, hanging, dying on the cross, 
cried out, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? In one sense, it was right for the disciples to direct their attention to Jesus because this was no accident. Jesus knew about this storm. He knew it was coming. And He let them go through it. See, God brings storms into our lives to test us, to draw us towards obedience and dependence and a hunger and a longing for Jesus. God brings these storms into our lives to to tear down the idol of self-reliance, that I can do things on my own, that I can just get a little help from God, but basically I've got it. And He does it to encourage us and to build us up in Christ. And so, if you find yourself in the middle of a storm, then take comfort. God is testing you, but Christ is with you. And this ultimately will work out for your good. It's going to be hard. It's going to be painful. There will be loss. But God brings great storms into our lives. But second, fortunately for us, Jesus provides great calm. Now, lest I, I lead you astray from the ultimate purpose of this text, right? though this text is clearly a means of comfort and faith building in God's provision for you in the midst of hard storms, that's not ultimately Mark's point here. Mark's main point is Jesus. Who is Jesus? Jesus is the one who has the power to calm storms. Yes, this is a comfort and a faith builder in the midst of trials, but Mark is reason, Mark's reason for recording this event is so that we can deal with the reality of who Jesus is. Let's pick back up in verse 38. It says, But he was in the stern asleep on a cushion, and they woke him and they said, Teacher, do you not care that we are perishing? And he awoke and he rebuked the wind and he said to the sea, Peace, be still. And the wind ceased, and there was a great calm. I mean, there's Jesus asleep in this little boat, completely calm as the wind and the waves are raging around him. His followers were panicking. They were screaming and crying out, pleading for their lives. Yet Jesus was calm. Jesus was sleeping. Jesus remained completely confident in God. He simply got up, and he said three words, and everything was still. I think that Mark is intentionally simplistic about Jesus' reaction because he wants us to know that this is no accident. This did not catch Jesus by surprise. He knew about this storm. He, he knew about this test. He knew about God's plan and how it would lead him to the cross to die. That this was not his time. And so he could take complete confidence in God as the, this wind and these waves were whirling around him. He was completely calm. And with complete authority, the authority of God, like we've already seen so many times before, Jesus woke up, He said three words, three simple, powerful words, and the storm was silent. He said, be still. He said, peace. As soon as He said them, everything, went completely calm. Completely calm. Now, I don't know if you've ever been in a windstorm, if you've ever been in the middle of a tornado or something of of the like, but wind doesn't just stop, right? 
I mean, if you've been in gale force winds, like 60, 70, 80, 90 mile an hour winds, you know, even though the storm is passing, you see the winds settle. The only time the wind's completely calm is if you're in the eye of the storm, right? It doesn't just stop. That's miraculous. And even if that was possible for the wind to just shut off in a moment, there's still the fact that they're out in the middle of this huge lake. And these waves would have kept going for hours and hours and hours before it calmed down. But in that same moment that Jesus said those three powerful words, everything went placid. Everything went completely calm and still as if the wind had never ever been there. The water was so clear and calm that you could see your reflection in it. Have you ever seen water that calm? It's, it's rare, you know? There's like, it has to be no wind for that to happen. I mean, take a bucket of water and set it in the middle of the room and drop a coin in it and you see that, that the waves ripple back and forth for a while before they finally settle down. This doesn't just happen. This is a miracle. The fact that the wind shuts off instantly and the waves completely go placid is a supernatural act. This is an act of God. This is something that only God can do. And yet Jesus says three words and it happens. And that's Mark's point. Only God can still the wind and the waves like that. There are dozens of passages in the Old Testament that speak of God's power to control the wind and the waves. Here are a few from the Psalms. Psalm 65, 5-8 says, By awesome deeds you answer us with righteousness, O God, our salvation. The hope of all the ends of the earth and of the farthest seas, the one who by his strength established the mountains, being girded with might, who stills the roaring of the seas, the roaring of their waves, the tumult of peoples, so that those who dwell at the ends of the earth are in awe at your signs. Psalm 89, verse 9, was read earlier. It says, God, you rule the raging of the sea, and when it, its waves rise, you still them. Or Psalm 107, verses 23 through 30. Some men went down to the sea in ships, doing business on the great waters. They saw the deeds of the Lord, His wondrous works in the deep. For He commanded and raised the stormy wind, which lifted up the waves of the sea. They mounted up to heaven, and they were went down to the depths. Their courage melted away within their evil plight. They reeled and staggered like drunken men, and they were at their wit's end. Then they cried out to the Lord in their trouble, and He delivered them from their distress. He made storms be still, and the waves of the sea were hushed. And they were glad that the waters were quiet. And he brought them to their desired haven. Only God has the power to control the wind and the waves. Yet Jesus speaks and they obey him. We see Jesus has the authority over nature. Mark wants us to understand that Jesus is the authoritative son of God. He has authority over the wind. He has authority over the waves because the eternally existed son of the, of the Trinity created and sustains them. The wind and the waves listen to him because he is their creator and they recognize his voice. You see this in John chapter 1. You see this in Hebrews 1, 1 through 14, 
through 4. You see this in Colossians 1. My, my community group is going through that right now. Actually, we talked about this last week in, in chapter 1, uh, verse 16. It says, For by him all things were created, him Jesus, in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through him and for him. Jesus created all things. He sustains all things. Therefore, he has authority over all things. Again, Mark is trying to force us to wrestle with this question of who is Jesus? How is it that even the winds and the waves obey him? He wants us to see that, that, no, that Jesus is no, none other than the Christ, the Son of God. He speaks and nature itself obeys him. That's the kind of power, that's the kind of authority that Jesus has. Yet there's another psalm in addition to the three that I just mentioned that, that this passage drives us towards. It's Psalm 46. And it says, God is our refuge and strength, the very present help in trouble. Therefore, we will not fear, though the earth gives way, though the mountains be moved into the heart of the sea, though its waters roar and foam, though the mountains tremble at its swelling. We see this in our example of the true rock and refuge, Jesus. And then God says this in Psalm 46, verse 10. It says, Be still and know that I am God. See the connection? I will be exalted among the nations. I will be exalted in the earth. The Lord of hosts is with us. The God of Jacob is our fortress. Friends, this is not just a man. In Jesus Christ, the Lord of hosts dwells with us. We cannot minimize this or put it aside. We must deal with this man who says, be still, either to trust him, to believe in him for who he is, or to reject him, instead choosing to remain in the dread of the raging sea. Those are the options that we have. Either way, this great storm and this great calm leave us third with a great fear. It says, as soon as Jesus stilled the sea, he turned to his disciples and he said to them, Why are you so afraid? Have you still no faith? And they were filled with great fear. And at once they said to one another, Who then is this that even the wind and sea obey him? The disciples, they weren't completely sure about Jesus. They hadn't come to a definite conclusion on who he was yet. Had they truly believed that Jesus was the Christ, the Son of God, then they would not be so afraid because faith casts out all fear. Had they truly understood at that point who Jesus is, they wouldn't have asked the question, who then is this? Though they had feared for their lives just moments before, now that Jesus has calmed the storm Real fear has set in. It says that they were filled with a great fear. Not like the fear they had before. They thought they were afraid before, but now they are really, really terrified. You know, it's one thing to have a storm raging outside your boat. It's another thing to have God inside your boat. The creator and sustainer of the universe was standing in their 
boat. And they panicked. They freaked out. They were filled with great fear. And you see this over and over again as people come face to face with God. Abraham in Genesis 18 said he called himself ashes and dust when he stood before God. Manoah, the father of Samson, just said to his wife, he's like, I've seen the Lord and we are going to die. Ezekiel falls to the ground and he hides his face. He's only willing to look upon the train of God's robe. He is so afraid, hiding his face before the Lord. John fell over as dead. Daniel, when he saw the angel of the Lord, felt sick to his stomach and was sick for days. Job and Isaiah pronounced curses upon themselves. It's a terrifying thing to stand in the presence of God. Because if you see Him, then He sees you. If you see His glory, then He sees your sin. And you know that you are undone. You want to duck and run. You want to jump out of the boat. For them, there is no other explanation. They were just eyewitnesses to a supernatural act of God. And they were in shock. They could not get over it. They couldn't fully comprehend what this meant. And so they were afraid. And they were right to be afraid. But the question that they pose is Mark's question for us, a question that each of us have to answer. Who is this then that even the wind and sea obey him? This event, this question should grip us. We should have to wrestle hard with this. We too should be shocked and awed by this event. This is not some story. This is what Mark is saying happened in the life of Jesus. And if this happened, we've got to deal with it. We have to come to terms with it. We might try to simply dismiss Mark's account as an embellishment. Maybe the storm wasn't really that bad. Maybe they misunderstood and it just kind of happened to be coincidental. And so this led them to think that Jesus is more than just a man. But we can't do this because these men in the boat, they died for this. We can't dismiss that. Who is this with such authority? Who is this that sees my sin and my rebellion against them? What can we do to be saved? Oh God, we are perishing. How will we be freed from this? What can we do to stand underneath this fear? What do I do about my unbelief? There was another man that was sleeping in a boat once as a storm was raging above. The sailors came down and they they woke him in desperation. What do we do? What do we do? What do we do? And he said, throw me in the sea and the sea will be calm. There's the prophet Jonah. Right? We have one that's far greater than Jonah here. They woke him. He stood up. And he said, peace, be still. And the storm was calm. But more power than that, this is one who would later sacrifice his life, like Jonah did, willing to be thrown into the depths, not only to bring peace to a raging sea, but to bring peace to the soul of sinners. Sinners just like you and me. 
this man Jesus, having all authority and power of God, because he is God, died on the cross for fear, for our rebellion, for our unbelief. And he rose from the grave to satisfy God's wrath against sin so that if we truly repent of our sins, we turn away from it and believe in Jesus, then we will be saved. We will be reconciled to God. We are freed from the the storms of life. Not that we won't have to go through them, but that they will not ultimately gain victory over our souls. Our souls are not lost in that sea. They are saved. They are reunited and reconciled with the God who has all power and control over the wind and the waves and restores us to complete union with Him. But we have to decide who is Jesus. We have to come to terms with this. We've got to wrestle with it. And to, make, to be indecisive is to make a decision. There are only two ways. Either He is who He says He is and we must repent and believe and follow after Him or we choose to stay in the sea. We choose to perish. So this fear felt by all who stand before God can go one of these two ways. Towards faith or towards wrath. But each of us must decide. Who then is this? That even the wind and the sea obey Him. Let's pray. Father God, I pray for our souls right now. God, I pray that we would not just dismiss this as a story or a fable or some sort of, I don't know, interesting um, event that happened years and years and years and years ago that is somehow disconnected from us. That this is a message for us. That this is an account of the life the death and the resurrection of Jesus. And we are obligated to it. God, I pray that that we would be gripped by this account. That we would recognize the authority of Jesus Christ over all creation. He is the creator. He is the sustainer. The one who upholds all things were created through him and all things were created for him. And that includes us. God, I pray that we would be gripped by the fear of this. Not so that we could shudder in disbelief and continue in the same patterns, but so that we would recognize the fear of the Lord and the freedom that is found through the sacrifice of His Son Jesus on the cross. And then our souls might be at peace though the the water and winds are raging all around us. God, I pray that we would want this. I pray that we would recognize our need of this. God, forgive us of our rebellion against you. And thank you that those who have been justified by Jesus Christ have peace with you. It's in his name we pray. Amen.